we're on teaching number 11, which is saved by grace. And so Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So salvation is the need to be rescued from a dangerous situation and transported to a secure destination. So in this verse, we learn that it is by grace you've been saved through faith. So we're going to look at the context. What have we been saved from? What's the dangerous situation we needed to be rescued from? And what's the secure destination that you and I have been taken to? And so let's start looking at the, the context of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So what do we need to be saved from? Number one, we need to be saved from spiritual death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live, used to walk when you conformed to the ways of this world and of the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of us also lived among them at one time, fulfilling the cravings of our flesh and indulging its desires and thoughts. When we look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, you were dead in your trespasses of sin. This takes me back to Genesis chapter 1. When God told Adam, if you eat of the tree in, in chapter 2, if you eat of the tree, you will die. So it was a warning. And the question is, why did God give Adam the choice? If God knew that spiritual death was going to enter the human race, that sin was going to enter the human race, and bring such destruction that it has, why would God give Adam that decision and that choice to do that? And we discover in Scripture that God is love. And love doesn't force anybody into a relationship. Love gives people the opportunity to be or not to be in a relationship. Love doesn't control. And so God created us in his image, which means if God is love, then we were created to be love and to give love. We were created to receive love, to experience love, and to express love. That's the purpose of humanity, experiencing love and expressing love. And every problem in the world comes from, well, not every problem, but when God gave Adam that choice to walk in relationship with him, Adam chose not to walk in relationship with God, and he left the relationship with God. And one of the illustrations you and I have used you probably have heard me use it. It's something I use a whole lot. It's, it's a fish was created to live in the water and life for the fish is in the water. If a fish has the choice, which it doesn't, to leave the water and it left the water, then death enters into the fish. The fish has been disconnected from its source of life. And so when Adam left the relationship with God, Death entered in because God is the source of love and God is the source of light and God is the source of life. When Adam disconnected himself from the life of God, then the natural result of that is death. And when he ate of the tree, disconnecting himself from God, sin entered the human race. And we find out in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, that through Adam, sin entered the human race and through sin, death entered the human race. But Jesus came to bring grace to the human race and bring in grace. He took the sin that caused death, and then he brings us in, back into relationship with God, which is where we find life. It's kind of like if there's a lamp and you unplug the lamp from the electricity, the light dies. So the hope of the lamp is to be plugged back into the electricity so the light bulb 
can come on. So that's what Jesus did. Adam unplugged himself from a relationship with God. Death entered the human race. Darkness entered the human race. Jesus came as a light of the world to plug us back into relationship with God so that we can experience life and so that we can experience light, the truth about what life is all about. Since you were dead in your trespasses and sins, sins cause death, in which you used to live, you used to walk, when you conform to the ways of the world and of the ruler of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And remember this phrase, sons of disobedience. We're going to see that in just a moment. It's going to be important that we understand that this is unbelievers here. Sons of disobedience are are those who aren't in relationship with God here. They're, they're under the power of Satan. They're, they're in the control of the ruler of the air, uh, the spirit who is the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience or these unbelievers. So Paul says, all of us also lived among them, the sons of disobedience. We lived among the unbelievers at one time, fulfilling the cravings of our flesh and indulging its desires and thoughts. That's the battle of the believer right there, because even though we've been saved, we haven't yet been saved from our flesh. Paul talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the desires of the spirit, the desires of the flesh. I had a guy one time, he was probably 25, 26 years old and had come to faith in Christ. And, you know, people take 2 Corinthians five seventeen out of context all the time. And they had told him, hey, you know, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And they presented that verse to him. Hey, the old way you used to live is gone. The new way is here. The old desires you used to have are now gone. You have a whole new set of desires now. They didn't teach him that that's talking about the old covenant of law is gone and condemnation and the new covenant of grace has come, which is salvation. He couldn't figure out if I'm a believer and the old is gone, the old way I used to think, the old way, the old desires that I used to have, if those are gone, then why do I still have them? Because I'm a new person in Christ. So I explained to him, first of all, the context of the verse. And then I, I shared with him that the desires that you think are yours aren't yours. The thoughts that are coming into your mind aren't your thoughts. And I showed him this verse right here that all of us lived among them at one time, fulfilling the cravings of the flesh indulging its desires and thoughts. And I was just having another conversation with a, with a young guy this week, actually. Same conversation. Why, why do I still struggle with these thoughts? Why do I still struggle with these temptations? And I'm like, because that's the flesh. I wanted them to know they're not your thoughts. So don't live in the condemnation as if they're your thoughts or they're your desires. If they were your thoughts and your desires, you'd be happy you were having them. But you're frustrated that these thoughts are there and these desires are there. Why? Because they're not yours. And so it's really important for us to understand that the sinful desires of the flesh and these sinful thoughts aren't yours. One day you're not going to get a new body. Our body will match our spirits. And right now our spirit and our body and the flesh are in conflict. But the point of this is, number one, is we need to be saved from spiritual death. We're dead spiritually apart from Christ. We're disconnected from God. We're living in the darkness. And number two is we need to be saved from eventual wrath. Paul continues this in Ephesians 2, 3. He says, like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. We see in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see the two things 
every human being needs to be delivered from, that we need to be rescued from. We need to be rescued and delivered from death, and we need to be rescued and delivered from the wrath to come. And so that's what we're going to really spend a lot of time on because Paul was a student of Jewish scripture. So Paul wasn't pulling this phrase wrath or this word wrath out of thin air. It was so much a part of his theology. And we're going to look why that word wrath was a part of Paul's theology. But later on in Ephesians chapter 5, 5 through 7, Paul writes, For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with him. So he's writing to believers to say, don't, don't partner with unbelievers. The partner means to, to join ourselves with them in their immoral lifestyle. You know, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He didn't partner with them in their sinful desire or in their sinful decisions. The wrath of God will come upon the disobedient. And remember the sons of disobedient we just read about in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. The unbeliever who's living in the ways of the world, who doesn't know Christ, who's still spiritually dead, living in spiritual darkness. Paul talks about the wrath of God that's going to come, Colossians 3, 5 through 6. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So the wrath of God is coming on the sinfulness of the world. All right. So what is the wrath? What is wrath? Wrath is when God removes sin and sinners from the earth in preparation for the new earth, where there will be no more pain, hurt, heartache, disease, mourning, tears, sorrow, or death. The wrath of God to come precedes the full establishment of the righteous kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth. So this idea of this coming kingdom, this new earth, this new heaven and new earth originates out of Isaiah 65, 17, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, where the idea of the new heaven and new earth originates in Isaiah. The fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth, we see it happening in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Peter writes about it. Peter understood Jewish scripture. He writes about it in 2 Peter three thirteen. But in keeping with his promise, with God's promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Pay attention to this last phrase, where righteousness dwells, which means that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no unrighteousness. The mark of this new earth will be rightness, righteousness, love. Everybody is, is loved and everybody loves. It's the utopia that the world wants right now. We, we want safety. We want security. We don't want any more terrorism and no more diseases and no more social isolation and no more bombers walking into synagogues and blowing up synagogues or people walking into malls and, and shooting up people in a mall. We want a world where nations get along with each other. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to lock our doors. 
the world longs for, our hearts long for peace and joy in the world. And the promise of the Messiah was that he was going to bring this peace to the world. He was going to bring this joy to the world. And he will. He is still going to do this. But he's given people the opportunity to come to faith. You know, why is God slow in keeping his promise? As some people think slowness, Peter says, is because God desires that everyone be saved. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in the death of the unrighteous. God does not delight in wrath and in judgment because he loves people. But at the same time, we're going to take a a, a biblical survey and a sampling of God's wrath to come, which is when he removes all sin and sinners from the earth and sets up a kingdom of righteousness. So let's look at the verses that Paul would have been extremely familiar with as a student of Judaism, as a student of the book of Psalms and Proverbs and many of the other verses. Psalm 1, 4 through 6 reads, Not so the wicked, for they are like chaff driven off by the wind. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord guards the path of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes will not perish, This is what he's referring to. Jesus is referring back into Jewish scripture. You know, Nicodemus would have been extremely familiar with this word perish, which meant to be destroyed in judgment, the judgment to come. When God sets up his righteous kingdom, only righteous people will live in the kingdom and the wicked or the sinner will be removed in judgment or removed in wrath. Look at Psalm 26, 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. As we read more through here and we pick up this word sinners, we can really begin to understand the mindset of a Pharisee. Why does Jesus hang out with sinners? They're going to be destroyed in the wrath. They're going to be destroyed in the judgment. If this guy claims to be from God and he's hanging out with sinners, why is he hanging out with sinners? They're going to be swept away in judgment. He needs to be hanging out with the people like us, the righteous. Psalm 28.3 says, do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Malachi 3.18, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Psalm 37.12-13, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at the righteous. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Judgment. They're going to be swept away in wrath. Now, one of the words to really pay attention in here is the word righteous. Because there's a clear distinction as we read through Jewish scripture that the righteous will not experience the wrath of God. The righteous will not experience judgment. Those who experience judgment and the wrath of God are the wicked and the sinner. The Pharisees, like Paul, were extremely familiar with the book of Psalms and all the other prophets who clearly communicated that the righteous will live in the righteous kingdom. Remember, Peter said, the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells? Well, if God allows an unrighteous person to dwell in his righteous kingdom, then suddenly the righteous kingdom becomes unrighteous because how many unrighteous people does it take to make the kingdom unrighteous? You know, we think about this disease, this virus that's going on right now. 
how many people it's infected. It started with one person. And then it went to two people and two to four and four to six and six and it, and it spread. So if God allows one unrighteous person in his kingdom, he's going to infect the entire kingdom with unrighteousness. So God's going to sweep away all the unrighteous in judgment in wrath and all the righteous will live in the kingdom. The goal of the Pharisee was to live in the kingdom. And, and they woke up every single day with one goal I want to live a righteous life today. I want to live a moral life today because I want to qualify myself through my own righteousness to live in the kingdom of righteousness. So they were pursuing the righteous kingdom every single day of their lives because they didn't want to be swept away. Psalm 37, 20 says, but the wicked will perish though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field they will be consumed and they will go up in smoke. Psalm 37, 28 through 29. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. See this word perish again? That helps us understand John three sixteen. The righteous, though, will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. That's living in the kingdom of God. The righteous will be the ones who live in the kingdom. Psalm 37, 34. God will exalt you, the righteous ones, to inherit the land, or inherit, some versions say inherit the earth, to live in the kingdom of God on earth, the new heaven, the new earth. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. That's the judgment. That's the wrath to come. Psalm 37, 38 through 40, but all sinners will be destroyed, and there will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them from the wrath. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Proverbs eleven four, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I just have a sneaky suspicion that one of the Bible memory verses for the Pharisees was Proverbs eleven four. I bet you that's one of the first verses Paul learned from his dad. That, hey, the day of wrath is coming, Paul. But if you will seek to attain righteousness, you will be delivered from the, from the day of wrath to come. Proverbs eleven nineteen. truly the righteous attain life. Where at? In the kingdom. You attain it. You work for it. But whoever pursues evil finds death. Proverbs eleven twenty two. be sure of this. The wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Proverbs eleven twenty three: the desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. Proverbs eleven thirty one: if the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. So this idea of this coming kingdom of righteousness was instilled in Jewish children. Just like we raise our children to know about Jesus and to know about the cross. Jewish children understood that there's a coming Christ, there's a coming Messiah, there's a coming King who's going to usher in the kingdom of God on earth, which is the home of righteousness. So they understood a Messiah is coming, a Christ is coming, who's going to usher in a righteous kingdom. And the goal then was to seek righteousness so that you could become a citizen of that kingdom. 
And if a person wasn't righteous, then they couldn't live in the kingdom. Remember when John showed up, it's, hey, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. Well, the Jewish people understood exactly what he was talking about. The fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures of the Messiah to come and establish a kingdom. He's about to establish the kingdom. And remember, John was the forerunner. Before the Messiah came, there was going to be a forerunner, according to Isaiah, who was going to announce the coming of the Messiah. And that's what we see here in Matthew 3, 7. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, John said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Now, they knew exactly what he was talking about. His audience knew what he was doing. They knew all the verses that we just read. Very familiar with this coming judgment, this coming wrath, going to wipe away all sinners, and only the righteous will be left to live in the kingdom. So we move into Luke 3, 4 through 7, get a little bit more understanding of this verse. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is John the Baptist speaking, a voice of one calling in the desert to prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, to make straight paths for him. And when the Messiah comes, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. And John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, Again, we find out Matthew, he's addressing the Pharisees. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath of God? So after the wrath of God, what we see in this verse is every valley shall be filled in. Now, that that probably doesn't mean as much to us as it did to, to them back then. But just think of what traveling was like for people during that time. And think of what life was like and trying to build homes and have places to live. We look at valleys now and we say, wow, that's a beautiful valley. Valleys then were, you can imagine the water rushing into the valleys. They didn't have the drainage systems that we have. And the floods that would come in and would wipe away homes. Valleys were terrifying. Even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, valleys were very fearful, fearful places. So this was really good news that when the kingdom comes, these valleys are going to be filled in. We're not going to have to deal with valley life anymore. Every mountain and hill made low. Now think about trying to cross the mountains. The mountains were huge barriers, difficult places to to travel through and up and difficult places to live. Now we look at the mountains and we say, wow, I'd love to live in the mountains. Beautiful. Look at the mountains. The mountains are are majestic. But, But back during that time, mountains were, we're fortunate to live in a time where people cleared the trees and they put in paved roads and now we can drive to the top of mountains. Can you imagine back during the time of the Jews and, and the time of Jewish scriptures before Jesus came and even when he came, mountains were tough go. So when this Messiah comes, he was going to fill in every valley. He, he was going to, every mountain and hill would be made low. The crooked roads would become straight and the rough ways would become smooth. What a great and glorious time these people were looking forward to. But before this time was inaugurated by the Messiah, wrath and judgment would come because no unrighteous person would live in the righteous kingdom. Nicodemus wanted to live in the kingdom. So he comes to Jesus. What's it going to take, Jesus, for me to live in the kingdom? Jesus said, you must be born again. That flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom. You have to be born from above. 
And then he dropped this message on Nicodemus. And remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee seeking to achieve righteousness. And Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That one statement right there jolted Nicodemus. He was convinced, as the rest of the Pharisees, God delighted in wiping the unrighteous and the ungodly and the sinner and the wicked off the planet. Let's get rid of these sinners. And so for him to hear this, that God loves the sinner, God loves the unrighteous, God loves the immoral, was news to him. That just floored him and stopped him in his tracks. Jesus was, was presenting a concept of God that had never entered into the mind of Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, this was another shocking truth for Nicodemus, not whoever behaves their way into the kingdom, whoever believes in him shall not perish in judgment. So that's picking up on all the verses we just read, perishing in judgment, the objects of wrath, swept away in judgment. So anyone who believes, whoever, whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Save from what? The wrath to come, the judgment to come, when sinners are swept away in judgment, to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned or not swept away in judgment, in wrath. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they believed not in the name, that's Jesus, of God's one and only Son. John 3, 36, for the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, will not be swept away in judgment. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. What do we learn here? That the wrath of God does not remain on a person who believes in Jesus. The wrath of God remains on a person who does not come to faith in Jesus. The Pharisees were convinced that the wrath of God is not for those who behave their way into the kingdom by seeking righteousness. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, he says that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering into the kingdom ahead of you. That was shocking. How could the prostitute and the tax collector gain entrance into heaven and the Pharisees not? Because the Pharisees were pursuing citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, and the prostitutes and the teachers of the law were not pursuing citizenship. Here's the reason why. There was a revival among the prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors. And the question is, why was there a revival during the life of Jesus among the prostitute and the tax collectors? And this is the, why the revival was. Because in Jesus, they discovered hope in that they could live in the coming kingdom of God. Because Jesus' message was not, if you're good enough, you can enter the kingdom. His message was this, if you receive my grace, you can enter the kingdom. If you admit your sin and accept my righteousness and accept my forgiveness, you can enter the kingdom. So he's making entrance into the kingdom a gift, which was totally not something that the Pharisees and the teachers of law, that was not their theology at all. 
was the opposite of their theology. So now we can imagine why they hated Jesus so much. Matthew 13, 49, Jesus says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. That's the day of judgment. That's the day of wrath. Romans 5, 2, 1 through 5. What Paul does in Romans chapter 2 and 3 is absolutely amazing. What he does is he's, he's setting up the case for grace in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. He's setting up the case for grace. He's going to prove that nobody's righteous and can enter the kingdom but at the same time, anybody can become righteous through faith in Christ and enter the kingdom. So he says this in Romans 2, 1 through 5. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. We do that, don't we? I mean, we'll criticize somebody for something when we've done it a hundred times. We are no better than anybody we criticize, even though we think we are because that's why I'm criticizing this person, because I think I'm better than him, or I think I'm better than her. But in reality, I've done the same thing. Paul's setting up this incredible logical argument within a courtroom of law to try to convince everybody that they need grace. And the first thing he's doing is saying, you're not as good as you think you are to people who are trusting in their own righteousness. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based upon truth. So if God judges a person for criticizing another person, and he says, you know what, you're no different than the person you're criticizing, God's judgment is based upon he knows what he's talking about. When you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment or God's wrath? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience? not realizing that God's kindness or God's grace or God's goodness or God's mercy is intended to lead you to repentance. Repentance is the realization of the grace of God and that I need grace. That's repentance. Repentance is it's this recognizing that I'm a sinner and the realization that the grace of God is available for me as a sinner. And it's me turning away from my own self-righteousness and my own works and my own pursuit of righteousness. I'm repenting of pursuing righteousness. I'm repenting of the Pharisees. What did they need to repent of? They need to repent of self-righteousness. What is a person in this context of verses, what does that person need to repent of? Self-righteousness. So often repentance is, oh, that sinner needs to repent. Well, maybe the person who's telling the sinner needs to repent, maybe they need to repent of their self-righteousness. That's the point Paul's making here. Because in reality, the sinners of Jesus' time, you know, the, you remember the Pharisees, all oh, those sinners, those sinners, those sinners. They were repenting without anybody telling them to repent. Why? Because they saw grace in Jesus. They turned, it was the grace of Jesus was such a magnet that it turned the sinner. They already knew they were sinners. And they turned toward Jesus. Remember what we read earlier when, when John the Baptist told the Pharisees who came down when he was baptizing people, who told you to repent and to flee the coming wrath? It was sarcasm to them. They, they didn't think they needed to repent. They were earning righteousness. But because of your stubbornness, the stubbornness and your unrepentant heart to who? The self-righteous in this verse. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. 
when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Then Paul goes into Romans 2, 12 and 13. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. That's the Gentiles. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. So this concept of righteousness is rooted in Jewish scripture. And Paul's just picking up on it in Romans. It is not those who hear the law. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought. Hey, we have the law. We're good. We're fine. We have it. Who are righteous in God's sight. But it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Oh, the Pharisees would have said at this point to Paul, we're good then. Because you just said, Paul, you just said it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. We're good. Paul's not through yet. That's why you never want to take verses out of context, because if you take that verse out of context, we can go teach, hey, if you obey the law and you pursue righteousness, God will declare you righteous. Uh, We got to put that verse back in the context because Paul's got a little bit more to say. He's developing a thought here. He's a lawyer laying out a case and he's making the case for grace that every human being is unrighteous and everybody needs grace. So he moves on in his argument. He says in Romans 3, 4 through 8, let God be true and every human being a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So when God speaks and God judges, his judgment and his words are right. When we judge, we're wrong, criticizing you as if I'm better, right? But if our unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And Paul says, I'm using a human argument here. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Here's here's the point he's making. If our sin shows how great God is, then why are we condemned for our sin? Because don't we want to show how great God is? So that this Paul was actually being accused. He's really speaking through his accusers here. Notice what he says to his accusers. Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say? So Paul was being accused of something that he never said. Let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just or deserved. Here's what he's saying. Our sin shows how great God is. Because God is sinless. How do we see how bright the stars are? The only way we can see how bright the stars are is the darkness where the stars sit. So if the darkness makes the stars shine brighter, then why would we curse the darkness? Why don't we celebrate the darkness if the darkness makes the light shines better? So here's what Paul is saying. If our sin, if our unrighteousness reveals how righteous God is, then why don't we just, now Paul's not saying this, he was accused of it. They were saying, then why don't we just be more unrighteous so that people can see more how how righteous God is? And Paul says, no, that's not what I'm saying. He's trying to show people we're all unrighteous and God is righteous. He just wants people to see that. And the more unrighteous we are, the more righteous we see that he is. So we come down to Romans 3, 9 through 18. So Paul's at his conclusion and he started his case in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He's making the case for grace, and now he's concluding his case right here. 
what shall we conclude based upon everything that I've just said? Do we Jews have any advantage over the Gentiles when it comes to righteousness? Not at all. Just because you have the law doesn't mean you're more righteous than the Gentiles because it's not having the law that makes a person righteous. It's obeying the law that makes a person righteous. And they thought they'd obeyed it, but they hadn't. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin as it is written. So what Paul's about to do here is he's quoting all these verses from Jewish scripture. Every one of these verses that he writes comes right out of the Jewish scripture because he's trying to convince the Jews who are reading the book of Romans at this point in time that they're unrighteous. And he's trying to prove from their own scriptures to show them that their own scriptures show them that they're unrighteous and deserving of the judgment and deserving of wrath to come. He's quoting Jewish scripture here. He says, there is no one righteous. He says, your own scripture says no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Everybody's turned away from God. We're all like sheep. We all go astray. All have turned away. They have become all have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. This was a huge truth to the Jews who were pursuing righteousness by good works. No, Paul said, there's no, your own scripture says no one is good, not even one. Your scripture says that their throats, our words are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. I mean, this is an incredible condemnation of the human race. All of us. Paul is trying to show us our need for Jesus. He's preparing people for grace by showing us how sinful we are. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and mercy mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then Paul moves into Romans three nineteen through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God, Jew and Gentile alike. The Gentiles had the law written on their heart. The Jews had the law written on stone. Neither obeyed the law. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sights by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In this verse here that says, every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. I was teaching school, ninth and 10th grade, and these three girls, they were best friends. They came to me, and we were going to have a test the next day. Ah, Mr. Robertson, can we go out in the hallway and study for the test tomorrow? And I said, are y'all going to study for that test? Yes, sir. We're gonna, you, you promise. Y'all are going to study for the test. You aren't going to talk about other things and laugh and giggle. You're really going to talk about and study for the Yes, sir, Mr. Robertson. They were serious. We're going to study for the test. So they go out and they go sit in the hallway. There's a vent right beside my desk that vents to the hallway. So any conversation going on in the hallway, I can hear. So they go out and they sit. You know how much time they spent studying? Zero. And I just let them go. I'm just listening to them talk about all kinds of things. And so um, a little while later, I send somebody, hey, will you go? Y'all go out in the hallway and get, you know, these three girls. And they come in there and the bell rings and all the other students leave. And I asked these three girls to stay. I said, how, how'd y'all study and go? You're prepared? You're ready for the test? Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Robertson. 
we studied hard and I think we're going to do really, really good on the test. I said, um, I said, you see that vent right there? And he said, oh, yes, sir. I said, I heard every word y'all said. Y'all didn't study for the test. And their jaws just dropped. Oh, my gosh, we've been caught. They were accountable to me. I was the authority. I was the one. And they became silent. What do they say? We've been caught. See, God has seen everything we've ever done. He's heard every lie, everything we've done, every place we've been, everywhere. And what do we say to God? I've been good. I've done good. No, you hadn't, Brad. You've lied. I've seen what you've done. I've seen where you've been. I've seen how you've acted. I've seen how you criticize people. I've seen how you thought you were better than this person, but you were passing judgment on them. You know what? You're no different because let me tell you what you did that's worse than what they did. So the whole world's accountable to God and nobody will be declared right in the sight of God, pure, holy, clean, having never sinned in the sight of God by the works of the law or any kind of works. But it's through the law we become conscious of sin. And we've talked about this. How does, a, how does a person become conscious that their face is dirty by looking in the mirror? How does a person become conscious that their hair needs to be combed by looking in the mirror? He would never take the mirror to wash our face. We would never take the mirror to comb our hair. The mirror is going to point us to the comb, and the mirror is going to point us to the soap. But the mirror can't do a thing about my dirty face or my messy hair. The law is a mirror that points us to Jesus. He is the, quote, comb. He is the, quote, soap. In the role of the law, the law is not bad. The law is good. And the law points out our, that we're sinful. The only way to escape, to be saved from the coming wrath when God removes all sinners from the earth, is to be righteous. The only way to escape the righteous judgment of God is to be righteous. Since all are unrighteous, God provides righteousness as a free gift of grace, purchased by the blood of Jesus and fully given to those who place their faith in him. Look at Romans 3, 21 through 25. So Paul's made his case, setting up this case that the entire world is unrighteous, Jew and Gentile alike. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So now he says there's a way to become righteous that has nothing to do with our behavior, law, a standard of behavior. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law and the prophets testify that you can't be made righteous through the law, but the law shows us that there's another way to be righteous, and that's through faith in Christ. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now there's hope for everybody. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's his righteousness. We don't have it. He does. And we're all justified freely. That means we contribute nothing. When something's free, I contribute nothing to it. Somebody else contributed everything to it. Here's who contributed to our justification. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption or through the payment for our sins that came by Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Be a, probably the better word is propitiation. The full, he took all of our unrighteousness upon himself, all of our sin upon himself through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So how's an unrighteous man made righteous? Faith in Jesus. Look at Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, made innocent, declared to be righteous, 
we have peace with God. That means we're not going to be under the judgment of God. We're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Those who are standing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, wrath will not touch that person because that person has been declared righteous by faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Wrath cannot touch that person because they're standing in the grace of the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves the ungodly. That descriptive list that Paul gave to describe the sinfulness of the human race, God loves every person in that list, which is every one of us. So even though he doesn't love our behavior and love what we do, he loves us. And he demonstrates how much he loves us by sending Jesus to take the wrath or the judgment for us. Because he doesn't delight in anyone being under his wrath. And look at Romans 5, 9, follows up Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 5, 9, since we've been justified by his blood, made clean, made righteous, forgiven, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. What What have we been saved from? Death and wrath. Jesus died our death and Jesus took our wrath and now he lives in us and we stand in his grace. Look what 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 says. They they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So what does this tell us? There is a wrath that's going to come. God's going to clean up earth and he's going to create a new earth. And you and I are going to be rescued from it because we placed our faith in Christ and we stand in grace. But God loves those who haven't come to faith in him yet. And that's why God leaves the church on the earth to communicate the good news of grace. Because a wrath is coming. And, and sometimes we can become so pharisaical in the church. All oh, those sinners out there, those sinners out there. Boy, God's going to get them and their political beliefs and how they believe and what they're doing and their actions. God's going to get them. We can become just like the Pharisees. Yeah, get them, God. And we forget, oh, boy, for the grace of God, there go I. We want to remember why we're here. We're not here to condemn the world. We're the body of Christ on earth. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but came to save. I'm not here to condemn the world for their sins. You and I is not here. The church is not here to bring condemnation upon people for their sins. We're here to bring the good news of grace to the lost so they can escape the wrath to come. They need to know about the wrath to come. That's a message they need to hear about. And we don't need to deliver that message in a self-righteous attitude. But we need to communicate that message and we need to communicate the good news of God's grace to people. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. He took that wrath upon us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. You know one of the most encouraging messages that a believer can hear? You're not going to go through the wrath of God. That's encouraging because we saw the content of the wrath in the Jewish scriptures that we read about. That's not something anybody would want to go through. 
but we've been delivered from the wrath to come through faith in Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation provides the final words about the wrath to come and the new earth to come. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty. This is, this is John seeing the wrath of God falling upon the human race. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves when the wrath of God came. And among the rocks of the mountains, and they called to the mountains and, to, and the rocks. This is how severe this wrath is. They're calling for the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide, from, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The same blood that came to deliver people from the wrath the same lamb that came to deliver people from wrath is the same lamb that delivers the wrath to come. And Jesus gets no joy out of it. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? The only person who can withstand it is those who come to faith in Christ because they won't be in it. So how are we saved from spiritual death and the wrath to come? Number one, we're saved because of God's love. So in the context, Ephesians 2, 4 Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, 1 through 3 talks about the coming wrath to come, the coming judgment to come. But then it's followed up with the word but. But because of his great love for us, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, God, Ephesians 2, 5, who is rich in mercy. So how are we saved from the wrath to come? Number one, we're saved because of God's great love. We're saved because of the riches of God's mercy. And we're saved because of God's glorious grace. Look at Ephesians 2, 5. But God, who has great love toward us, God, who is rich in mercy, it is by grace you've been saved from the wrath to come. Grace, the kindness of God. God saved us. It's what he did. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace. Grace is everything God did for you and me in Christ to deliver us from wrath. And not only to deliver us from wrath, but to put us in a place of safety. We've been seated with God in the heavenlies. For it is by grace you've been saved from this wrath to come, from death and, and from the wrath to come, through faith, faith in Christ. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We didn't save ourselves from the wrath. God saved us. He purchased it. Not by works. We can't work our way into saving ourselves so that no one can boast. Hey, Brad, how'd you escape wrath? I was a pretty good person. No. Hey, Brad, how'd you escape the wrath? The blood of Jesus Christ. He took it for me. He did it all. Number four, how are we saved from, the, from death and the wrath to come? We're saved because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So from death to life. Jesus died our death, and he gives us his life, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved from wrath and from death. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Where will you and I be when the wrath comes? We've been raised with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We're not going through the wrath. We will be delivered from that wrath to come. We will experience grace for all eternity. So we're continuing with this verse. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, 
he may show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what is grace? Grace is the kindness of God expressed to you and me in our sins through Christ. It's his kindness coming to us and say, I love you. I don't want you to experience wrath. I don't want you to experience judgment. I want you to be delivered from the wrath to come. I want you to experience eternal life. And in his kindness, Jesus comes and he dies our death. He takes the wrath upon himself and the judgment upon himself. So grace is the kindness of God that delivers us from, the, from death and the wrath to come because Jesus died our death and took our wrath. So what do we do on earth until the time of the coming age? Number one is we embrace grace. That's how we live. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. I embrace it. and I, It never was my works and it never will be my works. It's the work of Jesus. So we embrace grace. And number two, we enjoy grace. If God didn't want us to enjoy grace, then he wouldn't have given us grace. We looked in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Grace is a gift that God's given us. Well, we don't give gifts to people for them not to enjoy. The reason we give gifts to people is for them to enjoy the gift that we've given them and we purchase for them. How can you and I enjoy grace? The way we enjoy grace is realizing Jesus did it all for us. I'm forgiven because of Jesus. I'm in fellowship because of Jesus. I'm righteous because of Jesus. I'm in right standing with God because of Jesus. When we realize it's all Jesus and none of us, boy, we can finally for the first time enjoy our relationship with God because we removed ourselves from the cycle of works. And it's all about the cross of Jesus for us. What do we do until this age where we're enjoying grace for all eternity? Well, we evangelize the lost with grace and we educate the found about grace. Number four, we express grace to others through good works that God has prepared for us. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. God did the work of grace that saves us, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Boy, the pressure's off for me to go do good works. Our prayer is, God, I know you prepared good work for me to do. And by your grace, I know you're going to reveal these to me. And by faith, I believe you're going to lead me into these good works. So it's not us trying to do good works to gain entrance into the kingdom. The good work of Christ gains us entrance. And now it's like, God, show me the good works that you have for, that you prepared for, for me. So not only is salvation by grace through faith, but our destinations by grace through faith, the good works. That's so freeing that God's not up there saying, go do good works. He said, I got good works for you to do that I prepared for you to do. And if you'll walk by grace through faith in me, I'm going to unfold these good works for you. So what do we do until this age of grace comes when we're, we're enjoying grace forever? According to Ephesians 2, 7, we edify others with words of grace. Ephesians 4, 29 says, let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building up the one in need and bringing grace to those who listen. Why does somebody listening to me need words of grace? Because they failed. They didn't measure up. They messed up. So what do I bring to people who've messed up and don't measure up? Do I bring condemnation and shame and guilt and criticism and slander and put them down further? Or do I build them up with, hey, I love you. I forgive you. I want to encourage you. I want to build you up. I want to speak life into you with my words. So we want to edify people with words of grace until that day comes when we're, we're going to live in this incredible world of grace in this age to come that Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, 7. We extend grace to others. 
says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed. This is Ephesians 4, 29 through 31. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, outcry and slander, or raging and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Malice is if you hurt me, I hurt you. If you say that about me, I'm going to say it about you. Whatever you do to me, I'm going to do to you. He said, instead of these ways of behaving, be kind and, and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The word forgiving and forgave there is not the Greek word for forgiving and forgave. The Greek word for forgiving and forgave there is the word charis. It's the word grace. And that fits with the theology of Ephesians. It's what Paul's been talking about in the whole book. So now he's saying, hey, the grace that God has given to you, go give it to other people. So here's what it says in the Greek. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, gracing each other just as in Christ God has graced you. See, I can't grace another person until I realize I've been graced. And once we realize what we've been delivered from, what we've been saved from by grace, then we will deliver to other people what God has delivered to us, grace. Number seven, how do we live until this age of grace comes? We exchange the old way of thinking and living with a new way of thinking and living. And that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 17 through 28, and Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9. A whole new way of living when grace comes.